There is no one way of building a life with purpose. There is your own way. And each way is different. And each of us has the right to explore what feels right to us. Welcome to Good On Purpose. This is a podcast for anyone searching for something more meaningful in their life and work. I'm Nilesha Chauvet, Managing Director of Good, a purpose-driven creative agency working with brands and charities to help make the world a better place. In each episode, I'll be speaking to people who've made a conscious and deliberate decision to give something back. People from all walks of life who represent a new generation of leaders changing and shaping the world today. Listen in as I dig deep to get to the very heart of the story they really want to tell, and most importantly, to understand why they're telling it now. Today, I'm joined by Francesca Cavallo. She's the co-author of the best-selling book series, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls, which inspired millions of girls all over the world to dream bigger, aim higher, and to fight harder for equal rights. She's also the co-founder of the company that created and published it, Timbuktu Labs, and is responsible for three of the most successful crowdfunding campaigns in the history of publishing. Rebel Girls raised a record-breaking one million US dollars. Her work has created a global movement dedicated to the empowerment of young girls. And today, she now runs Undercats Inc., a media company focused on promoting diversity in children's media with books, TV shows, movies, podcasts, and newsletters that inspire families to act for equality and social justice. Francesca, it's such a pleasure to welcome you to Good On Purpose. Thanks so much for joining us. You've been an incredible creative powerhouse, selling 4 million books worldwide, translated into 50 languages. But what's so striking about you is that you are also clearly a really smart businesswoman and an entrepreneur. So talk to me about your journey and how it all started. Describe the moment when you woke up and you said, you know what, there just aren't enough stories celebrating our female heroes. So I'm going to help write one. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, truly an honor to be on your podcast, Nilesha. And wow, we are starting with such... (laughs) It's a big question, isn't it? It's a big question. It's a very big question. So I guess my journey, I, I was born in a small town in Southern Italy. And I grew up being a queer girl, a lesbian, without knowing that lesbian existed. So for me, lack of representation has always been very a very personal issue because I, I touched with, you know, in, in my own life, how I was deprived, for example, of my teenage love stories because I, because I didn't know that I could fall in love with a girl, I rewrote in my head all the times that I fell in love with my volleyball teammates or with my classmates. I I thought that that was friendship because I thought that friendship was the only thing that could exist between two people of the same gender. So for me, it's sort of, I realized that I was a lesbian when I was 23. You know, it's never too late, but however... It is true that you are deprived of certain experiences that I could have had 
if I had been surrounded by more stories that were informing me of what the possibilities were. So, but what happens, and, and this is really hard to understand because when we talk about representation, it always sounds so abstract. It sounds like something that uh, is a trend now and people are sort of obsessed with it, but it's not really, it doesn't really matter because it's just a, a matter of paying lip service to politically correct subjects. And people don't realize how personal and how important this is in because it changes the trajectory of people's lives. So it is incredibly real. It's not, you know, pastime for the minds of lazy intellectuals. <laughs> it's very personal yeah. and it's about the life of millions of people around, around the world. But the, the really hard thing is that when you grow up in a world that is not prepared for you, that is not, you're not handed a manual of instructions. So it's like you're living through this world and everyone else has a manual and you don't have it. And you feel like there's something wrong with you because everybody else knows how to behave. Everybody else knows how to get a boyfriend. Everybody else knows how to get a girlfriend. And you you don't, and you don't know what's wrong with you. And you're, you can think all sorts of different things. I am lucky because I survived this, but there are people that never get to that point. So while I understand that my story is inspirational for many people, it's also important to realize that there are people who don't survive this lack of representation. It's so interesting because it's clear that so many of your early experiences and, and challenges and interactions have really informed your life as, as they would many of us. So growing up then, my question is, was there a particular female that was a role model to you? In other words, who is your favourite rebel girl? I hesitate to answer to this question because I could give you the, you know, the short answer would be my mom, because my mom has indeed been my role model in, you know, for good and for bad. That's the reason why we talk about our mothers to our therapists, because they are our role models. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that was particularly important when she was uh, young, she would have loved to become a doctor. But her father thought that studying medicine was too long. And he thought that being a doctor would not be good for a woman. So he convinced her to study law. So my mom studied law and she never, she never had a career because she didn't want to become a, a lawyer. So she was a housewife and an activist later in life. But what she did was with us, with my sister and I, she broke the cycle of oppression. So she took this experience and she knew how hurt she was for not being allowed to follow her passion. And she gave my sister and I all the freedom in the world to decide what was best for us. You know, when I think about generations of women, I think that it, all in all, the inspiring thing is that my mom didn't need to be perfect that she took one thing 
that hurt her when she was a child. And she said, when she was a, a girl, and she said, I am not going to do this to my daughters. And even if it's just one thing, the sum of all these one things that we do to one another can actually change the world. Even And so we don't have, now there is a lot of pressure on moms to be the perfect role models. And I think that's too much pressure for any human being, for a mom, for a dad, for anyone. And it's we should always be careful with role models because when we talk about role models, we imagine people that are perfect. And, when, and then we feel bad about ourselves all the time all, for, for all of our shortcomings. And it's not that, it's the will, the, de the determination to break the cycle of oppression for one thing that you can tackle. Because if we all do that, the world can, can be much better in a span of a few generations. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we need role models, because we need to understand how others have trailblazed. But at the same time, we need to be our own person. And in from your experience of growing up then, how have you been able to study all of these phenomenal women, which to be honest with you, if you're looking at all these incredible women, it's enough to give you an inferiority complex, isn't it? Because you kind of think, I'm never going to be like that. How do you strike the right balance then between aspiring to be like these role models, but still embracing who you are as an individual? This is a very important question because this was actually a very important concern of mine. When I was writing the first two volumes of Rebel Girls, I was really concern with showing these women in the most relatable way possible. I didn't want them to seem unattainable models. I wanted them to feel close. I wanted them to feel human. I wanted them to feel warm, imperfect, because that's exactly the problem with, with role models, that a role model should never crush you. They should never make you feel that it's impossible for you to achieve what they achieved. A role model should always show you how they did what they did, saying, this is my experience and you can follow my inclination for believing in my dreams. You, you know, you don't have to measure your achievements with mine. You only have to be inspired by the fact that we can live with courage, that we can forge paths that are new. We can travel through roads that have never been traveled. We can do all of those things and we don't have to worry to fail because there is no such thing. Failure does not exist. All that exists is experience. The way that I did this in Rebel Girls was also in the selection of the women because, for example, I didn't just select presidents or famous uh, actors or big scientists. I also, one of my favorite stories in the first volume is uh, the story of this baker and poet, Cora Coralina, who, you know, if you measure her career and you compare her with, I don't know, Marie Curie, of course, they are not going to have the same level of achievements or even they were not as consequential, you know, in the history of the world. But Cora Coralina, the reason why I love her story so much was that she wanted to write. She wanted to become a poet. And she stuck 
she stayed close to her dream, even though her parents didn't put her to school. And then she had kids of her own. And then she, you know, she learned how to write later in life. And she fulfilled her dream when after her kids had grown up, she opened a bakery and she gave a little poem with each cookie that she sold. And I thought that that was a beautiful story that was comparable in terms of like the meaning that she was able to infuse her existence with. It was comparable with Marie Curie. And that is the sort of, so if you see these stories isolated from each other, they have one sort of meaning and they can be overwhelming. But if you see these stories in combination with each other, the reason why there is a gallery of, of stories, there are hundreds of these stories, is to show you that there is no one way of being successful. There is no one way of building a life with purpose. There is your own way, and each way is different. And you're, each of us has the right to explore what feels right to us. And there is no, we don't have to. Uh, do any atomic discoveries in order to be considered important members of this society. We are important for the fact that we are alive. And if we find ways to celebrate our being alive with others and we give love even just to one person, even just to one son, to one daughter, even just to one neighbor, that is enough to make our lives meaningful. And that is, in a way, dynamite inside the patriarchy because the patriarchy functions as long as we all aspire to the single one model of success. That's a little bit, you know, the, the revolutionary part of this box. And then also the, the other kinds of stories that I, that I publish now with my new company, Undercats, is these celebration of the variety of experiences that life is, you know, because otherwise diversity becomes only a cosmetic operation. You know, it, it's very superficial to think about diversity only as a matter of having all characters with all different skin colors. Because if they are, if they have all different skin colors, but then they're all doing the same things, they all have the same life, they all aspire to the same things. That's not real diversity. Diversity is something else. It is way more radical. It requires a lot more care, a lot more attention, and it requires us to question our way of life, the things that we buy, the things that we sell, the things that we, you know, the values of our life. It requires a much more radical approach that questions our entire existence. And that is the part that I find fascinating and thrilling. So I would like to talk to you about Undercats because obviously you have moved on quite significantly since Rebel Girls. Mm -hmm. But I just want to ask you a question about the time that you were publishing Rebel Girls because I was quite interested to learn that you've talked about some of the challenges you face from traditional publishing houses. And we've talked about the system and the way that the system works. So when you, I was quite surprised to learn that they were not biting. And when you were pitching, you were encountering some resistance and therefore that inspired you to do it on your own and publish the books yourself. So talk to me about what the resistance was. How could they possibly refuse a pitch for Rebel Girls? We never actually pitched 
Rebel Girls to traditional publishers because I had published six books before Rebel Girls with traditional publishers. And it had been a very disappointing experience because um, it was like uh, you were feeding a monster and then the monster was, uh, you know, spitting <laughs> your box. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. But they didn't really care about the stories or they didn't really care about the relationship with the authors. It, it was a very alienating feeling. I didn't like the experience at all. Ellen and I started looking for other ways to uh, make it happen. And we started looking at crowdfunding because we were fascinated by the idea that we didn't need to ask anyone for permission to make this box. So we were like, okay, we don't have to convince anyone. We don't have to waste our time into trying to find a house for this box or you know, convincing people that it's a good idea to have 60 different illustrators. So we decided to go with crowdfunding because of our previous experience. And we didn't, we didn't pitch the book to, to, to a traditional publisher. What happened was that when the, the Kickstarter campaign exploded, mm, which it did, big publishers, which it did, big time, big publishers came to us and they offered, there, there was one of the biggest publishers in the United States who offered a royalty advance of $1 million for the book. And we said no. We didn't even think much about it because we were like, well, now we demonstrated that there is a demand for this book. And why should we sell the rights? Also, because they, they told us that it would take one year to publish the book. And we had promised our backers that they were going to have the box in the five months, six months. I don't, you know, it was May when the campaign ended and we had promised that they would have the box in November. And the, uh, this big publisher told us that's impossible. And we were like, yeah, but we promised. So we need to make it possible because <laughs> we're not going to break our promise. And it was mm -hmm. crazy because we had never published a book before. So we had to write the book to commission 100 illustrations, to find a printer, and to find a way to deliver the book to 20,000 people that were spread across 75 countries. It's a lot to take <laughs> on as a challenge for in five months. And we were just two people. We didn't have a team at the time, and we were the authors. So I understand why they said it was impossible. But I also understand, because I saw it with my, own, with my own eyes, that to break the mold, you have to break the mold. So there is no way around it. You can't break the mold within the mold. Understood, yeah. You have to take a leap of faith. And it was, you know, it was complicated. It was uh, exhausting. It was crushing in a way because it took a lot, a lot of work. But we made it, and uh, for us, the most important thing was that women are not, we are not given the amount of trust that, that men are given on any given day, day. It's not common for women to be trusted with $700,000 as the, our first backers did to create something. And we, did, we wanted to honor that trust. So for us, not respecting that deadline would have been violating a trust that was incredibly 
valuable because it's, it's so scarce. It's interesting because as a writer, do you feel that there are just days that you just want to write stories that got nothing to do with representation? You just want to write a great story. Do you feel that you're carrying a disproportionate amount of burden because you have a responsibility now to a community to have a voice, to air issues, to talk about, you know, to create a platform for where, where discussions about diversity and representation can be had. Do you feel that this has been an enriching experience or do you feel that as a writer, you would like a little bit more freedom to explore other ideas perhaps? No, I, I feel completely free. And sometimes I'm scared by this freedom, but so far representation has never been a burden for me because I am a very avid reader. I, I've always read tons of books. And so it is enchanting for me to realize how many stories we haven't read yet, how many stories we haven't seen yet. And when you write from this perspective, it's actually a very exciting exercise because you uncover little details. So when we talk, for example, when I wrote Elves on the Fifth Floor, which is this uh, Christmas novel that I wrote for, for kids, and it's a story of a refugee family with two moms and three kids. You know, you're like, okay, I'm writing a story that has a lesbian family as a protagonist. And you, you, you tend to believe that the entire novelty of this story is in the concept, in the thing that, that I just enunciated now. But then what you realize is that when you start writing this story and you write about these women having breakfast with their children, it's the little details of that scene that are the part that is the most delightful. Because the concept in and of itself is ideological. But then when you write this scene of these women cheering with the little coffee cups and you see this family living in a house and having their family choreographies to get to the dinner table and they have their ways of communicating with each other and with their kids, at least I get lost in the beauty of these details. And I realized that by, by portraying the life of a lesbian family in the pages of a picture book, or as it, in the case of Paralympians, for example, this picture book series that we're doing about the life of great Paralympic athletes of our time, by portraying the way that, for example, this character that doesn't have arms relearns how to brush her teeth, you realize that representation is not, as we were saying at the beginning, something abstract. That by questioning, by interrogating yourself, how do I write this for these specific characters? And how does this change the story? How does this let the story evolve in a completely different direction? That is incredibly exciting because it's not, I don't feel that the responsibility of writing about different characters was bestowed upon me. And then now I have to carry the burden. I feel like I'm Indiana Jones <laughs> and I have to explore all of these details and to figure out things that cannot be automatic because they have never been created before. These are problems that no other writer has solved before me. 
So, for example, when we created Paralympians, which is this uh, picture book series, this is the first time that characters with different disabilities get portrayed in picture books. Because when you think about illustration and disability, the only thing that comes to mind is the classic group illustration with a white child, a black child, an Asian child, and a child on a wheelchair. That's it. That is not representation. That is lip service. So when you actually work on representation and you, and you have to work with your illustrators to understand how to portray different kinds of bodies, that is a different challenge. And it, it makes my job an exploration, a discovery every day. So I don't do it because I, I feel a responsibility for doing it. I do it because I find it exciting and new. So I, I feel like... Um, I, I feel my own version of my of Marie Curie <laughs> because I am discovering new things and I'm making them available to the people out there. So it's actually the thing that m makes me want to wake up every every morning. And, we, and we're so glad you do wake up in the morning because the world is richer for your stories. So you've said in interviews, and I loved what you said, uh, that you would like to use Undercats, which is your new company, to disrupt the Disney notion of nostalgia and our longing for a past with castles and princesses, because there's a need for children's publishing to be connected to the issues of our time. So how do you think we can do that positively and constructively, particularly when maybe children are feeling very anxious about world issues at the moment? Well, I think that we need to do it precisely because children are feeling anxious about the situation in the world. So, for example, the first book that we published with Undercats is uh, Dr. Lee and the Crown Wearing Virus. I wrote this story at the beginning of the first lockdown during the first wave of the pandemic because what I noticed was that when we realized that coronavirus was not as dangerous for children's health, we stopped communicating to them because they were not in school. We were having to juggle with remote work and, uh, you know, children were like, they're fine. Uh, it was, you know, they, they are happy. They're not even in school. So we have to understand how to organize their life. We have to sort of understand how to do this remote learning thing. But why we were consuming staggering amounts of information to try and understand where this story was going, the only thing that we were telling our children was, wash your hands, don't do this, do that. We were just giving them this big number of rules to follow without giving them a chance to have an idea of where is this going? Where are we? Which is the question that we've asked ourselves. And we, we didn't need to consume all those news necessarily because we would get new information at every news show, right? We just wanted to have a feeling that we could somehow understand what to expect. And for children, it was the same. So for me, the concern was, how do I help my little readers to understand how these could evolve? So the other thing that I was concerned with was the equivalence that so many ruthless politicians were creating between the virus 
and Asian looking faces. So I wanted to give children a story where they could see the first hero of this pandemic was in fact a Chinese doctor, Dr. Li Wenliang. So I wrote this story and I just made it available, uh, downloadable for free on my website. And uh, the story got downloaded 60,000 times in three weeks. And it was translated by volunteers into 38 languages. And this shows you that there is a very big need for children to be exposed to content that, that helps them interpret the complexity of the world they are living in. And that we are going into a direction we don't expect children to be interested only in fantasy worlds anymore. Because, because of the sheer amount of information that we, the grown-ups living around them, are subjected to every day, the, some information also reaches kids and they are, they are attentive. They are, you, you know, if you ever had anything to do with children in your life, you know that they pick up on everything. You're, you're constantly amazed at things that they start to think about in their head. So to find ways to explain to them the world and to inspire them to be curious about what is happening around them makes our democracies more perfect. Because the time to consider, children are not citizens of the future. Children are citizens of the present, and they have to be treated as such. And this is also what, you know, when we talk about inclusivity, when we talk about diversity, in, we are not just talking about skin colors. We're also talking about age. And making our democracies more inclusive means to give children the tools to participate. Otherwise, are we going to expect them to be suddenly interested in politics when they turn 18 or 21, that, that's not how it works. So we need participation, we need civil participation, we need people to want to participate in politics because that's the only antidote that we have against populism, against dictatorships. So it starts there. It starts by finding ways to make, the, to, to show the, because we don't have to make the world exciting. The world is already exciting. We have to find ways to make children discover that. So you are such a powerful, purposeful, creative leader, helping to elevate the consciousness of children through storytelling, children of the present, living in the present moment. So through the lens of representation, what do you think the world will look like in five years' time? I think that we are going in the right direction. I'm an optimist, so... Well, that's a relief. <laughs> yes, yes. There is something that happened in my hometown in southern Italy two years ago. One of the priests there organized a rosary against this law that was meant to punish uh, crimes related to homotransphobia. And I called him out on my social media and a group of people from my town, and among them, many teenagers gathered around the church with uh, rainbow flags. And one of the kids that was there, they were very peaceful. They just wanted to stand there 
with their flags. And the, the priest is uh, not a very nice <laughs> community leader. He called the police on these kids. They were just standing there with their flags. They, were, they weren't doing anything. And one of the kids, I think he was like 12 years old or something, told the, one of the police, what are you talking about? We're not in, two, in 2006. <laughs> and it was hilarious. The, he picked, you know, <laughs> one year that seemed so far in the past for him. And he picked 2006. <laughs> and I was like, I, I, we all laughed. The people that were, you know, older than uh, 18 all laughed. But it was such a relief. And when I was a child in the same town, when I was 12 years old, it would have been impossible for me to even imagine that I could stand there in that church where I sang in a choir with a rainbow flag and that I would be just, you know, telling uh, we're not in 2006. And, and I was claiming my right to my own identity. So I see that we are going in, in the right direction. Of course, these are battles that need awareness, that need us not to take anything for granted. Because the moment we start taking our freedoms for granted, they can be taken away from us, as is clear with abortion rights, for example. So we can't say, well, we voted for that. So now that's we, we have that, we can concentrate on other things. Because with abortion, uh, it couldn't be clear. There are many ways to take a right away from women, from minorities. So it is important that we stay vigilant. However, we are, as a society, moving towards a more equal world. And I think that COVID, in all of its tragedy, in all of the death, that it brought to so many families and poverty and uncertainty, it is bringing many millions of people closer to the understanding that there are parts that we have considered unchangeable of our lives and of, our, of the ways that our societies work that are, in fact, very much changeable. Not only that are changeable, but they need to be changed because we, if we need our society to work for everyone, we need to redraw how parts of the system work. And we need to redraw those parts of the system for them to work for everyone. Because if they don't work for everyone, that's where it starts to get tricky and it starts to get, you know, where oppression finds a way to influence our daily life and to make the life of some of us miserable. And this system doesn't work anymore. And what are your hopes for the young readers of your books? What would you like them to take away most from your work? My biggest hope since the Rebel Girls days has always been, I remember when I was writing those stories, I remember that I really strongly hoped that, these, that the stories I wrote could inspire new conversations between parents and children, between grandparents and children. And that's the feedback that I love the most. When people read my books and they tell me, I had with my child conversations that I didn't think I was capable of having. 
that is the thing that I really love when people tell me about this, this reading experience of my stories. That's for, for me, the goal is achieved, <laughs> mission accomplished, I think. And I hope these kids to be more curious about experiences that are different than their own. I want to write stories about families that have a family member in prison. I want to write stories about kids who are in prison themselves. And because the, the children's literature that we that we consider the standard leaves out not just a lot of characters with different skin colors and physical abilities and body types and but it leaves out a lot of life experiences that are part of the life of children. The, the children's literature is still out of the fantasy of a middle-class white woman. And that is not the reality for a lot of children out there that don't see their experiences reflected in the books they read and don't see the experiences of, of their classmates reflected in the stories they read. So if I read that it is possible to have a parent in jail, for example, I can relate to my classmate who is having that experience. I can relate to that experience when it shows up on my doorstep. And I can stop pretending that life is supposed to be anything. Our life isn't supposed to be anything. Things are never as they should be. Things are, are as they are. And the moment that when we stop giving children these stories that instill in them the belief that there is right lives and wrong lives, then we are creating space for more people to feel safe. We are creating space for more people to feel welcome. And when you create space for more people to feel welcome, you are actively telling people that there is no part of you that cannot be welcome, that there is no part of you that will be rejected. And uh, in my opinion, that, that creates a much better and equitable world. If there's one piece of advice that you could give to your younger self and to share with others, what might that be? Google lesbian. <laughs> but there was no Google, so I don't know. Uh, there were people that were smarter than me, uh, people my age, and they have found a way, I don't know, to <laughs> movies or to... I I was so insular in this. So find ways to find books about this. Find ways to not to feel so weird around your attraction for women. Yeah. <laughs> Francesca, it has been so wonderful to hear your story. Thank you so much for sharing your honesty and your insight. I'll always be grateful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nilesha. It's been a pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to Good On Purpose. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to tune in for more, don't forget to hit subscribe before you leave. We'd love to hear your feedback and your suggestions for future episodes and guests. And you can do that either by getting in touch by email, hello at goodagency.co.uk, or you can find out more on our website, which is www.goodagency.co.uk. Thanks again for tuning in and hope you can join us next time.